Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast. One of the great pleasures of producing these episodes is the chance to record special editions focusing on a whole range of other thinkers, writers, academics within Murdoch Circle. So I'm delighted to present um, a very special episode on Mary Midgley. Um, I'm sure many of you will have um, come into contact with Midgley through um, the recent work on the quartet, but she is one um, of the most important late 20th or early 21st century philosophers. She wrote an extraordinary amount and indeed kept publishing into her 90s and, as you may well know, was a close friend of Iris Murdoch's. And joining me today to discuss Mary Midgley's life and work, I have two leading experts in the field. Firstly, uh, Greg McElwain. Hello, Greg. Hello, Miles. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, Greg is Professor and Chair of Philosophy and Religious Studies at uh, the College of Idaho in the States. His research focuses on the thought of Mary Midgley and the intersection of animal and environmental ethics. He's the author of a wonderful um, introductory book entitled Mary Midgley, An Introduction. Um, you can find that with Bloomsbury. Uh, came out in 2020 and there's a link to it in the podcast description. And he's currently working on a book based on interviews with Midgley from uh, 2011 to 2018, entitled Mary Midgley on What Matters, Conversations on Science, Ethics and Nature. And that'll also be coming out with Bloomsbury in the near future. And secondly, we have Ellie Robson with us. Hello, Ellie. Hi, Miles. Thanks for having us. It's great. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Ellie recently completed her PhD at Birkbeck at the University of London. And in her thesis, Ellie argues that Midgley's metaethics is best read as a form of neo-Aristotelian naturalism, which I'm sure she'll unpack for us during the podcast. Her research addresses the neglect of 20th century women philosophers from analytic philosophy and provides an explanation of Midgley's relative oversight within this tradition. So, Ellie, could we start with you? Uh, could you tell us a little bit about Mary's early life, her upbringing and indeed how she found herself to be studying at Oxford? Yes, of course. Um, so Midgley, as we know, had a very long life of 99 years. She was born in Dulwich in 1919 to her parents, Tom and Leslie Scruton. Her father was a curate at the local um, church and soon they moved to Cambridge when Midgley was quite early on in Midgley's life. So she has some, some super early memories um, between the ages of like one and five where she speaks in her biography um her memoir the owl of minerva um about her young um early experiences uh playing in the garden with her older brother in 1924 they move to the home where Midgley really spent most of her childhood which is in greenford and ely um and she her memoir is full of um amazing descriptions of her early mm. life where she's playing in the garden with her um her younger brother Hugh and they are playing in the ponds and fishing in the ponds for newts and other creatures um and she she recalls again like um falling into a pond in a on a school trip in to Kew Gardens um so she's really like engaged in animal life that's going on there um so around um the time when she starts her early education she starts up having a governess who is uh, she shares with some of the students around her um her village um and then she goes to a, a school called saint leonard's which is kind of like a mostly school for girls there are a few um few boys there but it's quite conservative and fundamentalist and her father though he was um a curate wasn't super um conservative or old testament focused so she soon kind of moved to um 
her first proper school in 1932 at the age of 12, which was in um, Newbury called Down House, which is a boarding school. Mm -hmm. And it was originally, um, the school grounds were originally actually on um, Darwin's, um, Darwin's estate, Darwin's um, Down House in Kent. Um, so yeah, um, she really has some vivid descriptions here of what her teachers thought of her, which is quite funny given that she was such a sensible and um, measured older woman, she was really described in her childhood as like quite disorganized and clumsy and muddled. And she says her teachers claim she was like always um, ill-equipped and untidy and late. Um, uh, so yeah, it's quite, it's quite a, a funny contrast to who she became later on. Um, but she really recalls as well becoming like a big addict of, of fiction and biography and philosophy at this age. Like at the age of 14, she recalls reading all the way through the night um, books of fiction like Pride and Prejudice and like waking up early hours of the morning with a couple of hours before school started again, <laughs> having finished the novel. Um, and then she um, she moves um, to Oxford in 1938 um, and she gets a scholarship based on a general paper which she writes, which is, um, as we'll talk about later, like very Midgley. so these general papers kind of involved like very vast topics, um, uh, which you only could talk about in like a very short period of time, like a 40 minute period. And um, so she says one of the titles was um, Nature is too green and badly light, badly um, lit, please discuss. So that kind of thing, like, and she basically <laughs> submit one of these papers to yeah. Oxford and she gets a scholarship on this basis. Um, and she studies greats there and she meets Iris Murdoch very early on into the term. Um, they become very fast friends. She describes Murdoch um, very colourfully throughout um, her memoir, The Owl of Minerva. The Owl of Minerva. Um, she just instantly liked Murdoch for how little she cared about what other people thought. And I mean, she later became Michelle's uh, bridesmaid, bridesmaid at her wedding. So um, yeah, they were all studying um, greats together um, at Oxford and Somerville. And she also met Philippa Foote there, um, who was also at Somerville. And um, Elizabeth Anscombe kind of joined, she was a year older, but she also came sometimes to lunch at Somerville. So that's kind of how the four women became connected. What do you think it was about modern greats that attracted Mary? Obviously, you, you've talked in a little bit of detail about her sort of voracious reading appetite and she enjoyed fiction and she enjoyed um, science. And I, I presume for the, for the, for the time, some works of popular science as well. Um, but what was it that drew, drew her to the classics, do you think? So she recalls reading her first piece of philosophy that she read was um, was Plato's Republic. Right. Um, and she is quite, she's at times critical of Plato in her later works, but she is quite, like she has admiration for the Greeks, um, the Greeks early on. Um, so I think that's kind of where the first kind of inspiration comes from, her early, her early kind of reading of that. Um, but as we'll discuss later on, she also is quite, um, she's quite Aristotelian the way she approaches her philosophy. I think she really is is drawn in by Aristotle's ability to like um, synthesize and read across lots of different works in Aristotle's biology and zoological works. Um, wow. So I think she really relishes the lack of um, specificity that we find in lots of the Greek works. Yeah, I, I guess that that kind of Aristotelian background is something that she had in common with both Foot and Anscombe as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, Greg, um, what would you say were her most important philosophical influences at this particular point in time? Obviously, I don't know whether um, you can probably fill us in a little bit more about Plato, but um, is there kind of a, a 
a, a rejection of Plato and a mo movement towards Aristotle, or is she bringing in a kind of a, a, a much wider range of other kind of influences at this time? Yeah, I think early on that the Greek influence is pretty strong. And I think that there are elements from Plato, especially kind of the Socratic emphasis on seeing philosophy as part of the way we live, right? Philosophy is deeply yeah. connected to life. It's not a disconnected specialist practice, but something that is part of what it means to be a human and how we think of ourselves, um, which influences how we you know, live and treat each other. So that's a real you know, strong emphasis um, or influence from Plato, along with perhaps some maybe more organicist themes. Um, you, you know, Plato and other Greeks had elements of uh, kind of like Gaian thinking and some more corporate thinking that, um, you know, has been criticized in different ways by some different environmental philosophers, but there are elements of that there. So I, I think there's, there's some of that coming out of Plato, um, but Midgley over time um, is certainly pretty resistant to the more more dualistic way of um, you know envisioning reason mm. and or kind of mind and body that comes out of the more rationalist you know platonic tradition um, when that's kind of a line of critique she carries through um, against Descartes Plato and others um, so you know what we see quite a bit is um, her position her more constructive position in developing over time in kind of conversation with, but also in critique of kind of these classic philosophical uh, figures. Um, there definitely, I think Ellie can draw out more of the connections than, than I can, um, but there's definitely more of a, a, a you know, connection between her and Aristotle, mm -hmm. that more grounded sense of, you know, a human, rational, dependent animal that is picked up, you know, more recently amongst, you know, several uh, key philosophers. And we see that McIntyre and, and others that you've already mentioned. Um, so, so that thread carries on um, throughout her career, um, and, and those are probably early influences along with Plotinus, who she was working on in her dissertation before she left Oxford. Um, more, again, thinking in terms of uh, holistic thinking, she spoke of the unity and oneness very often, and kind of this um, sense of Plotinus, who obviously is, you know, influenced by Plato as well. So, you know, you, you kind of see the fingerprints everywhere of these, oh, these yeah. of the Greeks and the early thinkers. Um, but over time, yeah, um, as she goes on in her career, you see um, some of the influences, not just of, of those figures, but also her friends in the quartet, right? And their own interpretations of kind of philosophical classics. Um, so that dynamic that emerges over the years that you get a sense of from you know, Rachel and Claire's book and from Ben's book about, you know, these conversations really um, lead to these shared idea ideas amongst the quartet that they're, they're kind of all borrowing from each other in a way. Uh, I wouldn't say um, like a, a sense of the commons, but they're, they're definitely all on a very similar page um, and influencing each other. So, so we see that for sure. Mm. Um, but she, uh, over, over the years, um, adds additional approaches or is influenced by others. She's heavily influenced, I'd say, by Joseph Butler. Um, the idea of thinking of ourselves as these kind of um, deeply social uh, beings that aren't just purely egoist, self-interested, almost monsters or um, billiard balls in the way that you might see in a very extreme Hobbesian approach, uh, but those who have deep you know, fellow feelings and um, exist in something like almost like a corporate um, body 
Yeah. Um, so speaking in terms of members, one of another, she pulls out from Butler. And also, of course, Wittgenstein through the quartet. Um, and later on, um, she's, I think she has a pretty heavy dose of, of pluralism that she often kind of attributes to William James um, and figures like that who kind of see uh, not just plurality of, of values and perhaps approaches to moral philosophy, but also epistemology um, and other areas. So she's, she's regularly open to the, the, yeah, the, the multiplicity that we find in the world um, and, and tends to res resist um, aligning with any one school, um, mm. any one philosopher. Um, she doesn't like to be seen as a disciple of anybody. Um, we, we've talked about how she's really kind of the first Midgelian in the way that she's influenced by some, but also others beyond um, the, the traditional schools and kind of leads to this whole interesting new approach, which is deeply informed by science, by ethology, animal studies, biology, um, people like Lorenz, especially Darwin, also contemporaries like Jane Goodall. Um, and then in conversation and often criticism of some classic thinkers like Hobbes and um, Sartre and uh, would say even more recently Singer as a con contemporary. So she's she's um, she's got this process, right? Where she's pretty much always going after something. Um, and in that process develops kind of a more a more constructive position in mm. conversation with others. Yeah. And I think this also speaks uh, not just to the range and, and 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 depth of the people that she was reading and interested in and, and the people that she's influenced, but also the range of materials that she's that she's produced. Um, as you, um, people can see from the description box, the uh, the the the, um, the range of materials that she she wrote over fifty plus years um, is is staggering, really. I think and diff different um, forms of philosophy, different works um, from you know wickedness, women's choices, the solitary self. Um, right the way through to, to questions about uh, philosophical plumbing. Um, Ellie, could, could could you say a little something about um, the Oxford philosophy at, at this particular point in time? We, we, we know that um, the quartet are resistant against um, forms of uh, linguistic analysis, for, some forms of linguistic analysis, and also this, this form of scientism. Um, is... Is, is was was Midgley as as resistant as um as for Anscombe and Murdoch to to these? Yeah, I would say absolutely she was. Um, and this is a really interesting theme in Midgley, um, because it's quite informative of um, kind of the stance she takes in philosophy all the way throughout her life. Um, she's really resistant to, as you said, linguistic analysis, um, or like kind of the deliberate removal of anything um, of, of philosophy from from everyday life. She mm. really wants philosophy to be grounded in. The concepts that we're using in ordinary language and ordinary human life so in that sense she really shares this with the rest of the quarter and i'd say it's a really interesting historical point um that they are grounded as we find in claire and rachel's book and benjamin lipscomb's book in this really distinct historical climate right around the second world war pre and post war these four women are really resisting um this picture that we find in oxford which kind of separates facts from values and claims that um, we can't really find morality or normativity in the natural world in an objective sense. Sure. So we find um, people like A.J. Eyre, who is a student at the time, a 21-year-old, publishes this book that's described as a bombshell called Language, Truth and Logic. Um, and 
Midgley is kind of receiving this and the women are kind of receiving this this book and they're they're really resisting the picture that we can't like turn around and say okay what we're just the atrocities of the world war we need to be able to say they claim we need to have a joint no against this kind of picture that we're getting that there's no um objectivity grounded in, in morality so I would say like Midgley's experience of this um during the second world war and the classes that she's um engaged in um, during the war is really informative in her in her later life. Um, and she's like Murdoch, rejecting kind of like a reductionism. She has, as Greg was saying, like a holistic view where she wants to think about parts and wholes relating to one another. Um, and they're all really pushing against this like fact value divorce that we find. And I think this is an interesting thing in Midgley and Murdoch as well, where they're both really insisting on the need to talk in terms of myths and metaphors and how we really can speak meaningfully in philosophy using um using this kind of language um so yeah I would say that the Mitchell's experiences in Oxford really did like stick stick with her and we find this in an article that she wrote in the Guardian um years later called um proud not to be a doctor where she discusses the um kind of experiences and the kind of education that she had at Oxford um and how she found this to be quite narrowing and quite um resistant of like the broader, wider philosophical landscape or the shape of a human life, as you might want to put it. And yeah. um, so she's kind of claiming, she even suggests that after the PhD, there should be a corrective course for us PhD <laughs> students in order to reconnect our thinking to the rest of human life, because we shouldn't be digging down on one little puzzle. So this is kind of her reflection on what happened during her degree at Oxford. And her, um, as uh, Greg said before, she started this uh, PhD on Plotinus, but she later um, she later leaves that behind and reflects on it and says, oh, it, it was it was too narrow, too much of yeah. a narrow length for her time. And I, I think because she's such a diverse thinker and, and so interested in, in all sorts of different areas of, um, of, of philosophical exploration that there are. Um, yeah, you can you can understand why why she 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 left that behind. Mm. So unlike the other three members of the quartet that we've mentioned, she takes time out of the system, doesn't she, in, in a sense? Um, could you say something about her move to Newcastle? Because I think this is what the the in a sense one of the major moments in her life that kind of break from Oxford um, to move to Newcastle. And did she feel outside the philosophical mainstream at this point? Um, yeah, so Mitchell moved to Newcastle um, quite soon after she finishes her degree in Oxford and leaves behind a PhD in Plotinus. So she has a really short post at Reading um university and mm. then she meets her husband at some point during uh 19 late 1940s and in 1947 she moves with him to Newcastle um so this is a really decisive move for her um and she never returns to Oxford apart from the odd occasion to visit friends she spends the rest of her life in Newcastle she publishes all of her books from there she teaches at the university for from in the 1960s um, but really her whole life is there. And even until um, until uh, the day she died, she was living in um, in Jesmond Dean, um, Newcastle. Hence the connection with all of the or Durham University in parentheses project. Um, but yeah, th this is where really we see a bit of a generational gap emerging between Murdoch, Foote and Anscombe because Midgley is um, is in, in Newcastle publishing from there. But she this is not to say she's not engaging in some of the issues that we find still going on in Oxford as we'll discuss in a bit some of her early papers kind of engage in um the emotivism and the metaethics that she was experiencing during that time so it's not to say she's still not thinking about the issues but this was an interesting point in Midgley's life as a woman philosopher because she did 
Um, you might want to say take a step back from academia, though I mm. think I would challenge that claim. But she took 12 years out to, of academia or out of a um, out of a paid job to raise her three sons. Um, and during this time, like, I would say this is like a really exciting and formative time for Midgley because she reads like super diverse texts. Like she's engaged in philosophy, but she's also reading like zoology, ethology, anthropology. She's reading literary criticism and she's taking all this information in and she's applying what she learned in Oxford, her philosophical training, because she is by trade a moral philosopher. She's applying what she what she learns and she's really philosophizing about all these other texts. And as we'll discuss later on, this is what makes her into this incredibly novel, um, unique kind of synthesizer, um, which is, I think, super different to what we find in most other philosophers, including the rest of the quartet. Yeah. She really, so she's really, um, a, really a public philosopher during this time period. She's like speaking on the radio, um, Radio Three. It's called the Third Program back then, um, BBC Radio Three. She's publishing in uh, the New Statesman. She's like a full-on journalist, and she's writing really exciting things that your readers might be interested in. Um, a radio broadcast she published. It doesn't have a date, but she attempted to get on the radio with this broadcast called Rings and Books, um, and it's basically. Um, a she starts with this uh, striking list of philosophers who are married and philosophers who are unmarried or bachelors so yeah. she she kind of makes this claim that it's an important statistic in the way that philosophy has kind of turned out because if we think about the life that a bachelor or an unmarried person might lead it, it's a life of autonomy without dependence without um without responsibilities necessarily to others uh, and Midgley claims like the fact that we find this prevalent in the history of philosophy um, really informs what we think of as like the proper topic of philosophy. So she's like, okay, well, what about the mother who's pregnant at home? She would never reach the conclusion, um, you know, I'm the only thinking thing as we find in Descartes, I think therefore I am. Because she would just know that there was, you know, something else existing inside of her, the kick of her her baby in her stomach. Anyway, so during this time period, I think this is like not a time period to be pictured in Midgley's life as taking a step back. I think it's like a really exciting time and a a maybe a privileged time in which she was able to really get deep into all of these other interdisciplinary interdisciplinary topics which mm. end up informing her as we'll discuss as her really informs her later philosophy sure because it, there's a um a moment in the 50s isn't there where she, she publishes a, a few articles and then um if you look at the literature as it's generally seen on Midgley she then doesn't publish anything until 1970s and it's really into the 1980s that she you know pub publishes perhaps considered what would generally be considered her major works but it's good it's good to think of her as you say holistically and in the round and thinking about what else was going on in her life and what else she was doing at this particular point in time and not to judge that kind of period that that kind of 60s period as, as, as being fallow because quite clearly it wasn't and yet I think maybe the, the the story up until a few years ago might have been that it was like that. Mm. Um, Greg, could you say a little bit of something about that, and also and sort of take us through into the nineteen seventies and and why she then um, I think perhaps takes well we're taking the story on a, a little bit from what Ellie's been saying I suppose and and um, thinking about her first her, her first publications in the seventies. Yes, I mean I think that's when we see this. <laughs> this it's like Jedi training, right? She's like in, <laughs> in seclusion, like going through all these um, kind of amazing developments in different fields, right? And bringing yeah. them together into a way to just kind of unleash on the world. And when she finally kind of started in that direction, it was pretty, pretty fast and furious for like 40 years. Um, and 
that I think well, I think what we see in the seventies as she kind of takes a position at Newcastle, um, gets more immersed in teaching. She's developing a lot of these ideas through her courses um, at Newcastle. So she's she's finding ways to bring together her wide ranging interests, which are quite expansive. And so, um, just like Ellie said, right? She's reading all of the science, all the of course, literature as always, she's she's very widely read, but she's always right philosophizing along the way, and she's she's making right, she's she's drawing these scientific approaches, many of which do have very philosophical elements when you read them. Um, some of the kind of extrapolations that some uh, thinkers make, like Lorenz and obviously Darwin and others, um, as she's reading them, she's developing them and integrating them into this framework of human nature um, and how we are these. Uh, obviously we're animals. We're not just rather like animals. We are animals, her famous mm. line. Um, and then starts to connect all the dots from there, from that really simple starting point as to, you know, what type of beings we are, what implications that has for especially how we live and treat each other, which is kind of where the, the moral aspect develops and grows out of uh, certain conceptions of human nature. And then just kind of continues to ripple out from there into how we uh, relate to, connect to, uh, treat um, well or badly, animals, the natural world. And we can kind of swing back around to that. But this is when, this period I think is when that more, the most recognizable elements of Midgley's, you know, longstanding thought start to emerge as she's kind of more fully integrating a bit more back into academia, coming out of that, <laughs> the Jedi training probably shouldn't stretch that metaphor but coming out of that and then again ready to kind of take take on um this new terrain that so many re recognized as kind of a fresh new approach a new voice and and yes a synthesis in many ways of, of many ideas but also kind of with their own characteristic approach um a bit of her lean toward pluralism and some other you know unique elements in connection to her relational and holistic thinking uh, kind of de develops into uh, the first Midgelian, right? Um, yeah. Who certainly has deep connections to her colleagues, her friends in the quartet, but kind of becomes her own, uh, her own entity uh, mm -hmm. that continues to develop very consistently over over time. Um, and this is kind of right around when we're getting into Beast and Man in the late seventies, and I think that's probably um, that's probably Ellie. Ellie's <laughs> the best handle. I might kick it over to her if we wanted to keep yeah. going in that direction. Yeah, I think that's a you know obviously working through chronologically. I think that's obviously the the next point to 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 get to, isn't it? I'm I'm really interested in this idea that she's working in a kind of a in a in a kind of satellite position, if you like, because obviously Newcastle um, philosophy department at the time very well respected, but in a sense a little bit outside the mainstream of Oxford and Cambridge. And did you think that that had an impact on her thinking? Did she feel less pressure to write a certain type of philosophy? Were there, I don't know how much you um, either of you know, was there, was there kind of a different kind of philosophical work going on at Newcastle that you just wouldn't find in other uh, major departments in the UK? I think there are certain, there's certain evidence that she herself kind of felt that she was, um, or certain instances in the early publication of Beast and Man where um, we find kind of anecdotes where she suggests this. So there's an example um, when her first paper, well, actually it's her second her second paper, which is called um, The Concept of Beastliness. This was um, a really uh, the first kind of 
stab at what we find as the larger thesis in Beast and Man, um, which is the development on this theme of the idea humans are a kind of animal and what, what follows from this. But basically, the analytic philosopher Max Black reads this from Cornell University and he's like, wow, this, this woman's on something, let's get her over to, to have some discussions. Um, so she discusses um, the concept of beastliness with all of these different kinds of academics and she lists them like all the anthropologists, all the sociologists, but she goes on to say that the Cornell University philosophy department just like didn't want to have anything to do with her and like they weren't interested in what she had to say. And so the talks that she was giving were actually at the Cornell Science Institute, or there's a, there's a certain name that she gives it, but it's basically like a science and technology institute. Um, so this kind of suggests that she was falling out of the mainstream and that like maybe this idea of, of drawing this connection or, or as our Iris, Iris Murdoch describes it as like an urgently needed bridge between science and philosophy, perhaps this isn't seen as like typical or um, proper philosophy from the, um, from the kind of Ivy League perspective of Oxford and Cambridge and Cornell and Harvard and Berkeley mm. um, at the time. But I kind of want to talk about philosophical plumbing now, which is Midgley's, I think, like very cool meta-philosophy methodology, which she develops um, really from the beginning. I think this, I, this metaphor we find of like running water, I think is strikingly runs all the way through her work, even before she comes up with this idea of philosophical plumbing. But essentially the idea is, very anti-ivory tower, anti-Oxford philosophy, that philosophers ought to be like plumbers, which is essentially plumbers are coming into our houses and they're identifying the blocked parts of the um, uh, running underneath the, the buildings and um, the streams and they're identifying the blockages and they're getting the water running again. And Midgley's likening the philosopher to this kind of um, practical plumber, like the philosopher's job is to go out into society and identify where the blockages are between our thinking. So she's offering quite a few examples of this. She talks about um, like social isolation and social atomism. Um, and she's, she's kind of uh, saying that these things, which we might call myths, are exactly what the philosopher should be, should be tackling. So we get a really like practical, um, idea of philosophy as um, as a kind of like plumbing, conceptual engineering kind of idea. Um, but I'd say this is a real development of outside philosophical mainstream um, approach of philosophy as like a super practical a philosophy yeah. for life. Yeah. Yeah, that idea of practicality, usefulness, um, and applicability to life as it's lived, rather than as you as you say, some kind of language game. I guess is what would yeah be, yeah be boiled down to. Um, which is which is an, an you know a vitally important one and, and one in in some regards that I think Midgley was well ahead of her time as well. So we we you mentioned a little bit about Beast and Man, uh, published in 1978. Does that fit as a kind of an overture to the rest of her work from the 1980s right the way through to um, her, her final work, which just came out a few years ago, or is it um, just part part of the different sort of facets of what she was interested in? Um. I'd say it's very much uh, setting a scene right. for um, much of her other work. Though it's, as we've been discussing, Mitchell is strikingly systematic. She she really talks about a massive range of, of topics. Um, but I think what Greg's been saying about this kind of like Mitchellian way of approaching things is really mm. there in Beast and Man. Um, so methodologically speaking, I think it's the real start of, of her, 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 her Mitchellian approach. Um, but philosophically, I think this this first premise we find in the first line of Beast and Man, we are not just rather like animals, we are animals, is really exciting and highly informative of, of the rest of her thinking, which I think is like 
a kind of naturalism, but Midgley never describes herself as uh, in those terms. She's very resistant to being, as we said, very resistant to being pigeonholed. And she only ever described herself to Greg as a as a pluralist. But right. we find like, themes, yeah. So she's really not going to be happy with what I'm doing to her. <laughs> <laughs> but the um the themes that we find in Beast and Man really do run through like philosophical themes, like human nature is really her central topic in Beast and Man, and she claims that's like the trunk through which everything else branches, right? The rest sure. of her work. She says all of my work comes from this concept of human nature, which if you're in, if your leaders, readers are or listeners are interested, is uh, in like the fourth part of uh, Beast and Man uh, under the title Marks of Man. And then she also is talking about like morality um, and wholeness and um, and she's getting on to topics of animal ethics, which um, which Greg's been working on a lot, um, which is also developed in her in her later works, such as um, the 1984 book Animals and Why They Matter. Um, that's really engaging in in, in um, animal ethics. Um, one of Greg's favorites. And yeah, so I think it really is kind of setting the scene for a lot of her later works. Even if we find she's discussing different topics, I think she's remarkable in the sense that she never does a U-turn in this long career. Mm. She's always really um, connecting connecting back to the things we've been discussing. That's excellent. I, and I think that also makes the next question that I'm going to ask Greg um, perhaps more straightforward in a sense, because I'm, what I'm, I'm really interested in, Greg, is this I, these, these connections between some of Midgley's different books. As I've said, they are quite diverse in... Um, the kind of the, the topics they tackle and the way and, and in, indeed the ways of approach. I'm not suggesting for one moment I'm an expert, but could you talk a little bit about the um, about the, those connections? And I wonder whether those connections ever did played out in her political activism as well, and 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 um, what we might think as the kind of putting the, the the work into practice, if you like. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we see this explosion uh, that Ellie is kind of getting at early in the. 1980s coming out of Beast and Man. If we if we want to picture Beast and Man as an actual trunk for her thought, right? We see very quickly. We see how does that kind of what are the implications of that on how we relate to animals in the natural world? We see mm. animals and why they matter coming out there. Um, early on, we see kind of a collection called Heart and Mind that really just engages in a number of areas of you know moral philosophy of metaethics, ethics. Um, kind of continuing the project of if we are if we think of ourselves and ground ourselves more as you know animals and think about the implications of that um, and how our conceptions of human nature influence how we live you know what aspects of our moral thinking must we engage you know in a more kind of um, I think what she would see as a more grounded way yeah uh, which you mentioned earlier so we see heart and mind as a collection of essays dealing with you know, more those themes of morality. We see wickedness develop soon after. Um, another book that's dealing with certain aspects of human nature, um, specifically like how do we think of the more kind of um, <laughs> maligned aspects of human nature in relation to the more kind of positive virtues, so to speak. And it's an investigation of where we think of things like evil coming from, um, the balance of human nature, the complications of trying to be whole persons um, so we see themes kind of tying together different um, books, um, thinking in terms of the unity of human nature in the midst of our more fragmenting tendencies, both philosophically and, and just in our efforts to try to bring our lives into some type of unity, um, which never can really be final. So we kind of find ourselves in this very kind of conflicted condition as humans. Um, and that's a lot of where moral philosophy engages things. Um, 
Also during this time, she's starting to engage more directly with science and religion. So we have evolution as a religion in the mid eighties where she's critiquing trends in say the popular dissemination of science and the way that that's, those are interpreted and uh, yeah, communicated to the public and the language that's used. She gets into some conflicts with Richard Dawkins and others by stressing that how science is communicated and how that fits into the mythic ways in which we see the world really does matter and it can influence how we live. Um, scientists and those interpreting and disseminating it have to be clear and cautious in their terms and in their um, understanding of, of science because it's not this science and well, let's just say scientific findings are not these inert things that just happen in a vacuum. They happen in the context of, you know, it's a practice in the midst of a complex social world that we live in with these mythic um, structures that influence how we see and interpret facts and the world around us. So uh, a little diversion there, but um, point being, uh, she's, she starts to essentially, like Ellie says, systematically move through um, these different topics, these applied topics. Um, she looks a little bit at gender in the book. Um, and she's got a pretty significant critique of masculinism in the history of philosophy, but also in the way that people just see human nature at large, kind of as a male individual mm -hmm. um, most of the time, um, and, and just kind of starts going down the list. Whatever is on her mind, she just um, kind of goes at it, and and she she talks quite a bit about how, um, you know, even near the end of her career, but probably was the case early in her career, the things just tended to get under her skin. And then she decided that somebody had to kind of say something about it. <laughs> and that's, I think, partly why we see um, such a, a wide range of topics start to emerge. And that continues on. Um, and she covers many areas um, that might be considered the mainstream of philosophy, but a lot that kind of are more outside. And I think that that's what makes her very engaging to, um, you know, often outside of academic philosophy. Um, mm. I think within academic philosophy, if we think of animal and environmental ethics as legitimate established fields of, of philosophy, I think she's taken very seriously uh, there in those circles. Um, uh, but those were still really developing at this time in the early 80s. And, and we might kind of swing back to this, but she's really contributing to those as kind of a founding figure um, in animal and environmental ethics at this time. Um, so, so the 80s, yeah, she really just kind of like we were saying, kind of explodes onto the scene, covering a wide range of areas, making her presence known <laughs> a bit in the mainstream, but often out, you know, outside of the mainstream. But that outside of the mainstream work is really interesting because that becomes the stuff that many of us consider most important today. Sure. And um, and not just publishing is, but as, as Ellie was pointing towards, um, public engagement as well, making sure that the, the work is out there and, and being discussed. Because her, her, her connections of science, ecology with philosophy seem years in advance of a lot of what's going on outside that with people may perhaps in the 70s, 80s, and maybe even since the 90s being quite stuck in one kind of lane in in philosophy for example and and i think this is this speaks to what you were saying greg about um moving kind of outside the mainstream she moves squarely into thinking about gaia in the 1980s which is um i i guess something that's quite on um quite populist in some regards in the 70s but in terms of um a, a figure like midgley talking about it in a, in 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 this particular way uh rather different could you kind of ex explore that a little because i know this is something that you're you're fascinated by yeah i really am um and 
it, it all kind of fits when you look at it in retrospect. Um, so, you know, Midgley is a very, you know, it's almost a, she's kind of overflowing with with ideas and, and and very very lively and makes many connections she's very connective in her approach um and she's regularly bringing in what she sees as new terms and concepts that are useful at the time she, I, she and this is an interesting aspect of her work that we talked about in the later years during the interviews is she tends to not get particularly wedded to any particular term or concept because she sees those as shifting over time um, and that they, and this is the kind of that pragmatic side, they're almost like a pragmatist um, mm. in the kind of American sense. Um, she sees um, that uh, cer certain concepts have their, have their value and their use, but, but beyond that, they, they may not be, um, that may not always be the case. Uh, and why I'm saying this is um, her approach has always been very relational and holistic and uh, to, to philosophy in general, but especially to thinking about humans as social animals um, embedded, deeply embedded in social, but also ecological communities, worlds, really. Um, and this kind of grows out of her resistance to this very atomistic, individualist, egoist uh, way of thinking that she sees as stemming from Hobbes's influence. She sees that approach cropping up in a range of philosophical a range of approaches to moral philosophy um it's kind of like this underlying assumption that given that we are individualist egoists how then do we convince people to <laughs> treat each other well hmm. um and and she sees that as misguided because there are other sources and aspects of human nature that we can pull more readily on right our, our more social and relational sides thinking about people like butler maybe a little bit of the more communitarian side of things as well um and other figures um, and so this resistance to individualism leads her to bring in this kind of, uh, she sees that as this kind of contract myth, which has some connection to reality um, and has its uses, but also you can outgrow those uses and they can be, even become detrimental. And this kind of runaway individualism is a main target of hers and she sees it in the political scene in the 1980s. She's kind of very um, anti-Thatcherism and she sees that as really reflecting this um, almost like social Darwinist way of seeing things. Mm -hmm. um, so she's giving a countervail, she's emphasizing the countervailing myths, the other side of things, right? A more complete picture of not just human nature, but our connection to animals in the natural world that leads her in that more relational, uh, organicist, holistic um, direction. And that shows up in her animal approach and thinking of animals as part of our social worlds, our social communities, um, this kind of mixed human animal community that includes not only domestic animals, but just kind of as a way of thinking about our connection to um, animals throughout our history, which is also embedded in kind of this more broad, you know, ecological community, um, which echoes some earlier environmental thinkers, people like Aldo Leopold perhaps and others. Um, anyway, so what's happening here is she's thinking in these kind of these, these more connective senses of overlapping collectives individuals fitting into these nested communities and when she discovers Gaia right um, yeah. that kind of is a ready-made myth um, to to kind of connect with that more expansive holistic way of seeing things um, the idea that the earth is kind of one large um, you know self-regulating system going back to the Greeks it's been used in different ways um, 
And so she, she found that very appealing because here is something that can kind of, again, counter that runaway individualism. Um, unfortunately, you can also have runaway holism. <laughs> and um, she probably like, like uh, well, like she was in many um, topics, found herself not really in either extreme, right? Found, found herself kind of trying to bring together both in realistic, sensible ways, the way that the parts and the holes relate together. Um, so she did, she did lean away from the more personified aspects of Gaia, the more religious aspects of Gaia mm -hmm. uh, that others have kind of been drawn toward and that it perhaps had, had given Gaia, um, you know, more of a fringe status, I would say, um, that people tended to shy away from it. And, and, you know, that, that, you know, when I explore her work on that, that I also tend to kind of tamp down a little bit because I, I think she saw it as a useful counter myth not as a guiding vision for uh in a, in a religious or or truly personified sense um but right all of that kind of contributes to her overarching emphases in, in those areas i mentioned earlier throughout the 80s and then onward that have been really influential on, on in kind of an animal and environmental ethics yeah so very ahead of her time um and very i think influential in the way that she approaches those issues um Kind of in just the the with the nuances and the complexity that she brings to each of those topics uh, during that period, yeah, yeah. And there just seems so you know listening to you both talk about it, um, there seems to be so much richness out there that in in a sense we haven't both haven't caught up with her thinking yet, and also there there seems so many avenues for um, discussion and, and and new works to be to be written I, and I guess Ellie this is something that appeals to you as well which is her kind of pluralistic um, attitude her interest in so many different areas and does that kind of fo feed into your kind of thinking around Midgley's work in regards to naturalism? Yeah definitely um, so I think that Midgley's naturalism I think we can call it a naturalism in terms um, is providing like a really interesting perspective on the human animal divide and that's really what drew me in to thinking about um, naturalism. I mean, naturalism on a whole is, is obviously nature. We're thinking about morality and its connection to the natural world, or whether we can find morality in the natural world. And Midgley, um, as we were discussing before, um, her her way of kind of like viewing philosophy, she's kind of see through a lot lots of the traditions and um, concepts that we inherit. So she's mm. really thinking of like, so for example, some of the stuff that I I um, have done some some work on is Midgley's Aristotelianism. So I, I'm kind of arguing that Midgley can be connected to neo Aristotelian naturalism, which is basically like a contemporary um, view of naturalism associated with the work of um, Philippa Foots and Alison McIntyre and Rosalind Hershouse, among others. And it's basically looking at this concept of human nature and how we can discover what it is to be a good human, have a good character and flourish as the kind of being that we are given the being that we are. So it's kind of looking at the natural, the needs and wants um, and characters of, of human beings and what we can discover about the good life. But um, I've, I'm essentially connecting Midgley into this tradition, but she's looking at Aristotle and she's really not um, buying into this um, image of humans as rational animals um, and that being like the only trait that's relevant. She really wants to say, okay, like Aristotle's onto something here, like we are indeed rational animals, but she wants us to be rational animals plus all of these other traits. Like she's mm. really emphasizing um our emotional nature our instinctive nature our imaginative our, our cultural nature she's really pulling against 
the um, sociobiologists claim that like all we can really all we really want to discuss is biological inputs and outputs of human nature like she really wants to claim that there's a lot going on, on the inside we have motives we have purposes and really interestingly on Michelin naturalism she talks a lot about traits that cross over and overlap with other species and this really feeds into the exciting premise that humans are a kind of animal because she's kind of claiming like okay well obviously human beings it's good for us to live in communities it's good for us to look after our children and we can see this through the species barrier she puts it in um, animals and why they matter we can see that other animals also do the same and we can appreciate that the good on our side of the species barrier is shared and it's the same good as what we see on the other side of the species barrier and this is something that I really think is an exciting part of of um, what I see as like Midgley's naturalism and I think it's important like you were, you were just saying Miles about kind of new research projects in Midgley I think that there's so much to be done with this philosopher um, and uh, me and Greg are just really focused in our own corners of, of her work but there's so much so much more to to kind of research on and I think thinking about Midgley as a figure in her own right is super important in this sense like we we we've kind of like we've spoken about lots of elements of her thought here but I think yeah future researchers should really think about uh, like Midgley's meta philosophy her methodology what we've been saying about the philosophical plumbing and um, mm. what philosophy really is I mean Midgley's last book is called what is philosophy for which is published in 2018 something like three weeks is it Greg before she died something absolutely astonishing mm. Pretty close, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's a really interesting topic, I think, for for further research. I mean, her moral philosophy more broadly um, is really interesting. Her use of Butler, I think nobody's really done any work on that yet. Um, and the self, environmental ethics, um, Gaia, we've been discussing. Um, I think there's it's just such a rich body of work, and um, I think think it has been taken as seriously as it should be in academic philosophy. Um, and that's the hill that I'm willing to die on. <laughs> a, a small but growing field, no doubt. Yes, hopefully. Yeah, 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 we are, yeah, yeah. And Greg, were these um, ideas coming out when you were interviewing Mary as well um, over the last uh, decade or so um, in, in, the, uh, in the last years of her life? Was she, she was talking about... Um, the what went into making up the kind of the essential Midgley, if you like, and what she and what her hopes were for the uh, the future for her work after her death. Yeah, I mean, I, I so I had the opportunity to, I mean, just kind of the the, the privilege to to visit with Midgley over, yeah, the, the most of a decade of her last decade, excuse me, the last decade of her life, yeah. um, and during that time, she wrote three books I first started visiting her when she was 91 and thought you know all right um maybe I can get one interview in and uh went back the next year the next year the next year and she just kept writing and I was amazed um and that included uh the solitary self which was kind of a, that continuing critique of well scientism and of um kind of uh, kind of hyper individualism that included are you an illusion uh which is a critique of again scientific reductionism um, and a bit of philosophy of mind involved there as well, but also thinking of the self as kind of this uh, unified being. And then what is philosophy for, right? Which is again this kind of great synthesis in a lot of ways of, of things that she is seeing as quite important at near the end of her career. Um, those and many other things kind of came out because we would naturally discuss the books as she was writing them and these mm. um, interview sessions, which were, you know, which was really fun to see that process, see how her 
ideas develop. She's very conversational in the way that she does philosophy. So, and, and her books really come across as that. So you can really get a sense of what it's like to to speak with her. It's very, she speaks almost in written form. It just comes out so naturally uh, in that way, um, which is kind of, again, astounding to, to, to witness for someone who on my end has trouble putting together a coherent sentence most of the time. Um, so it was pretty fun. Um, one thing that I think, I mean, we, we regularly, like during the pandemic, <laughs> a lot of us were very quickly like, whoa, Midgley would have had a lot to say about a lot of this. <laughs> um, with everything that's going on with AI right now, mm. a lot of us are like, wow, Midgley did have a lot to say about this. <laughs> she seemed quite prescient and, and, and seemed to anticipate many of the issues that we're already dealing with and probably a lot more that we will be dealing with. Um, so she's always picking up on because she has such wide interests and because she has diagnosed what she sees as a lot of problems underneath issues, she's regularly um, kind of looking ahead to see, well, what will this later manifest as, right? What problems are we dealing with now, but what will continue to develop if we, if we allow ourselves to think in these ways, right? And that's the plumbing. That's the conceptual plumbing is kind of getting underneath the pulling up the floorboards and, and, and diagnosing the, the problems in the system so that this doesn't keep happening. Unfortunately, it does. Um, but that's probably why, you know, Ellie and I would say more people need to read Medgley and take her seriously. Um, and there's a lot of work to be to be done out there um, on her just because, again, she is she wrote voluminously. Um, there's a little bit of something for everyone, I think, in that who's interested. Um, so, yeah, hopefully more, you know, more students will be, will be heading that direction, writing dissertations on her work. Um, and just kind of getting getting her her thought out there, and, and I'm sh I'm sure they will with the two of you, and indeed uh, no doubt more other cheer more and other cheerleaders uh, out in the field. And Ellie, you're um, obviously just just completed the, the PhD. Um, where next with with Midgley? Good question. Um, well, I just want to generate some secondary literature, really, which I've done a bit with my thesis um, on some of her concepts because we didn't quite discuss this, but Midgley. Um, can be quite like a um, an implicit thinker like she doesn't really she, she uses terms across many years in similar or um, uh, okay let me just have a gap because I fucked that one up <laughs> okay take a take a breath and start do you want to start from the top yeah <laughs> fine what was the question again can you say the question again just to tell us about all the fun things that you're going to be doing <laughs> okay <laughs> Okay, um, yeah, this is a good question. I, I want to start by kind of making some secondary literature on Midgley, because I think that there isn't a lot of discussion of the concepts that Midgley uses. So for example, like her definition and, and use of rationality and human nature, and lots of her historical um, connections with the rest of the quartet. I think there's important secondary literature to be done on the fact and value distinction and that kind of thing. Um, but basically, I'm going to work on a book which is kind of like a, an academic introduction um, but more of like a explanation of Midgley's moral philosophy specifically. Um, so quite different to to um, Greg's introduction introduction to Mary Midgley, more focused on uh, undergraduate through to a professional philosopher level, which is kind of giving like a breakdown of um, her moral philosophy specifically. Uh, that's the next big project. But again, probably 
further on the horizon than than Greg's. <laughs> okay, well, it, it sounds excellent. I'm sure that the, all these works will sit very nicely together on the bookshelf. So, um, as we come towards the end of the podcast, I always ask uh, my guests to recommend something to uh, first time readers. Uh, so, what would be your choice um, for a Midgley book or an essay or um, something else, maybe something to listen to, um, to get people interested and engaged with her work? Greg, would you like to go first? That's tough. Um, as um, you know, as Ellie said, I am a big fan of animals and why they matter. It's hard for me to to not um, head in that direction. I think the um, it has a few things that people might, your readers might appreciate um, in Midgley's work. Uh, one, it, it's a nice, very short volume. Uh, she, um, uh, again, she, she's a very expansive thinker, as we've talked about. That can be very sprawling at times. And some of these larger works, they can kind of go in a number of directions that, that people may find more interesting than um, in certain cases than others, because she's trying to make a lot of connections. She's often tying together a few different points she's trying to make or, or maybe um, integrating some different you know journal publications into a, a larger work so I think these small volumes that she's published uh, animals and why they matter was really the first one later on um, you have you know the solitary self um, those are tend to be very focused there you are uh, those tend to be very focused and um, just she kind of uh, with animals and why they matter in particular uh, from the opening pages it's very engaging um, and you really get a sense of why she was so influential in animal ethics at the time in the yeah 1983 um, when most approaches to animals tended to come from the perspective of okay here's here's a rights-based approach or utilitarian approach a, a range of rationalist individualist approaches to animals now let's show you or to morality, let's show you why those must apply to animals as well. Right. She kind of starts a bit more organically from the ground up, from animals and human nature, and kind of thinking in terms of our relations and community with animals, um, our motive connections, all the ways in which animals really, you know, kind of supplementing and complementing and really rounding out many more reasons as to why animals matter, um, which is very novel, I think, at the time. Um, and just very well written, uh, yeah, very engaging. Um, and, and very influential, so I would, I would recommend and, that one. And no doubt, widely available as well. Yes, excellent. That makes it much easier. Thanks, Greg. Thank Ellie, you. how about you? What would you say to a first-time Midgley reader? You really must read this. Okay, a first-time Midgley reader. Um, yeah. What my answers around on this, depending on who I'm speaking to, but I think it's a first time. Um, I think I would always recommend Beast and Man. But with a caveat, The Beast of Man is quite a long book. It's something around 350 pages. But mm -hmm. I think if you're interested in Midgley, that is the the best where, the best place to start for many of the reasons that we've discussed so far. Um, a little shortcut to Beast and Man is her 1973 paper published in the journal Philosophy called The Concept of Beastliness, where she addresses lots of the core issues that she does in Beast and Man. She kind of debunks these um concepts of human nature that we find in traditional philosophy that tend to concentrate on one excellent feature of man against all the other animals such as rationality language use um speech that kind of thing and she kind of debunks these ideas in favor of what we've been describing as um kind of Midgley's view of human nature is like a cluster of lots of different things um so we find that in concept of beastliness um so 
if I can just venture another answer. Oh, I also okay then. <laughs> I also sometimes say philosophical plumbing. So there's um, a book published in 1997 called Philosophical Plumbing, or the, the full title is Dolphins, Utopias and Computers, Problems of Philosophical Plumbing, which is a great one. <laughs> but that's um, more of her meta-philosophy, her methodology, her view on like what we think, what she thinks philosophy should be doing. And she's she is engaging in a bit of AI there at the end, which is interesting. She's also engaging in um, our idea of personhood. She speaks about our language in, uh, interactions with the non-human world and dolphins and their capacities and that kind of thing. So that's great. Um, and there's another shortcut to that fairly longer book um, in a paper, which is just called Philosophical Plumbing. I think it's also published in philosophy so there you go that, there's my two answers but there's two short papers that you can kind of engage in if you just want to have a taste of Midgley. Thank you very much and I shall make sure that they those papers are linked uh, hyperlinked on the uh, description box below the podcast so people can um, get involved with them um, at their leisure once they've listened to this. Um, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation this afternoon with, with both of you thank you so much for coming on um and it's given me an awful lot to think about um in terms of linking up ideas between the four members of the quartet so for that i thank you so my thanks to uh greg mcallwain for uh being with us and indeed my thanks to ellie robson for being with us as well and my thanks to you all for listening <laughs>